You're listening to On the Road, Our Way, the archive of the podcast formerly known as Women on the Road from 2017 to 2020, hosted and produced by Laura Borshevsky and a production of Rabble Media. If you haven't yet heard, we're hosting a Women on the Road campout October 4th through 6th near Moab, Utah, which is our second annual in-person outdoor weekend event for women and female-identifying individuals interested in road travel, regardless of what vehicle you travel in. And we'd love to see you there. If you're listening to this on our original air date, tickets are going live very soon. So if you want to grab yours, make sure to check out our social media channels for more information on when and how to register. We'll be dropping that information anytime now. Looking forward to meeting everyone there in person. We really can't wait to see you in Moab. This episode of Women on the Road is brought to you by Merrill. Merrill believes there isn't just one way to get where we're going. And as travelers who are drawn to new destinations by the outdoor journeys that await, that's something we can completely relate to, especially when it comes to seeking out new trails. Merrill's goal is to provide thoughtfully designed, rigorously tested products that overdeliver on performance, versatility, and durability, so you'll be prepared for whatever trail the road takes you to. From getting out on the river to hitting the trails as a hiker or runner, I've been wearing Merrill all summer while traveling the states and can say that their shoes really do stand up to the test. And believe me, I like to pack light, but no matter what trip I'm packing for, a pair or two of Merrill's shoes are always going into my bag, because the road is just one part of the journey. And once I step out into the wilderness, it's those shoes that are taking me places. Learn more at Merrill.com. That's a really important part of overlanding, in my opinion, is getting out of your comfort zone and looking at the world differently. And overlanding just gives you such a good way to do that. I'm Laura Hughes, and you're listening to Women on the Road, a podcast to bring you closer to some of the honest experiences that life on the road has to offer from the perspective of women who've lived them firsthand. There are a lot of ways to do a road trip, and on this show, we try our best to talk about them all. So when I had the opportunity to start off this year to plan a visit to Costa Rica on a trip that would get me a little closer to the sun, it soon became obvious that road travel was going to have to play a significant part of the adventure. After some online research, I was in touch with a local 4x4 rooftop camper rental company called Nomad America, and before I knew it, I'd booked a week-long trip in a camping rig, which was not only going to save the combined rental accommodation costs that vacations can accumulate oh so quickly, but it was going to get me out onto the road in a foreign country, camping in a way I'd never camped before. It was exciting. Road travel is one of my biggest passions. But there was something about calling it what it now was, an overlanding trip, that made me feel a little intimidated. I've never gone overlanding. Was it different from other road travel? And if so, how? And speaking of which, was this even overlanding? What was I doing? I've heard some variation of these questions for years as the women on the road community has grown and asked to know if what they're doing qualifies as road travel. The answer is always yes. But now it felt like the tables were turned in a funny way, and I didn't know if I'd just gotten in over my head with a style of road travel in a country I wasn't familiar with. This is going to be a spoiler for anyone wondering, but my trip turned out great. 
which, as you'll hear, isn't hard to do in a beautiful country like Costa Rica. But the entire experience got me thinking about the importance of community around trying new things, especially when it comes to new travel experiences and places. Fortunately, the ladies behind Women Overlanding the World think exactly the same thing, right down to understanding how incredible an opportunity it is to get into a rig from Nomad America and hit the road in Costa Rica for a week or so. Women Overlanding the World has been dedicated to bringing female overlanders together for the past couple of years, and the women behind it, Sunny Eaton, Taylor Polly, Karen Bowsley, and Ashley Giordano, recently began creating ways to get women to know overlanding by experiencing it hands-on. The Women Overlanding the World team, like our own media team, is split up over multiple time zones in two countries. So I interviewed them in two pairs for this interview, and you'll hear us jumping around a bit as we tell their stories, share insights, and answer questions. And speaking of questions, it's time that we get to some. The first thing I asked everyone is the question I get every time I talk to a friend about overlanding. What is it? And not surprisingly, even among this tight-knit team, there's more than one simple answer. It's such a hot-button topic in the overlanding community. I mean, if you want to start an argument, an online argument especially, with a group of overlanders, ask them what overlanding is. The definition that I've come up with and found this in in various places is vehicle-supported, self-reliant, long-term adventure travel, typically exploring remote locations and interacting with other cultures. It doesn't matter if it's a van or like a big truck, whatever it is, and driving out of the country for long periods of time, being self-sufficient. I mean, we've got a lot of van life friends that we would absolutely consider overlanders. You know, it's just a matter of being self-sufficient and staying on the road for as long as you feel like. That's kind of the heart of overlanding. You're not like an overlander because you have a Tacoma with a rooftop tent. You can be a, a van life overlander or you could be in a little car or a, I don't know. Everybody's got like your own community. Right. People have done it on tractors and bicycles and motorcycles. You know, I don't think the vehicle matters. It's not about the gear. It's not about the vehicle. It doesn't have to cost a million dollars to do what we do because people do it every day in a vehicle that they buy for $500 and they throw their gear in it and they drive all the way to South America. So it's completely possible and it isn't defined by what you're using. It's defined by, you know, how you're using it. To me, it's really simple, and I don't really care how anybody else defines it, but it's just self-sufficient travel over long distances and for long periods of time. And so basically, you know, having the ability to live out of your car, camp in your car, cook, do everything that you would do on a normal day-to-day basis out of your car. Self-sustaining, long-term travel are some of the key components you probably picked up on when it comes to overlanding. But there's one other important factor that makes overlanding stand out in its own category of road tripping. Everyone on the team had something to say about this, more or less, but here's what Ashley and Taylor noted. Expedition Portal used to define it as crossing international borders and experiencing different cultures, exploring independently with your vehicle. Originally, that for me meant traveling internationally, and I was really, really stuck on that. And I'm trying to broaden that a little bit to include people who don't necessarily leave their own country, but still travel in this way where it's vehicle supported, self-reliant and long-term. So I like to use this definition that just says interacting with other cultures, because that's a really important part of overlanding in my opinion, is getting out of your comfort zone and looking at the world differently and 
overlanding just gives you such a good way to do that because you're bringing your own home with you, which gives you a little bit of a sense of safety, but it also just makes it easier to spend a longer time in a place that you enjoy or to interact in a different way with people that you meet. So to me, it's important that you're interacting with other cultures or, or at least traveling to a place that isn't known to you and spending some time there. Women Overlanding the World as an online and in-person community originally came out of a need Sunny identified unexpectedly while scrolling through social media one evening and encountering something that set everything in motion. Taylor joins in for part of this conversation as well. A lot of us met through one particular Facebook group that focuses on Central and South American travelers or, you know, the Pan Am in its entirety from Canada to South America. And this group is a lifeline. I mean, you know, when you're an overlander, you're very isolated out on the road. So other overlanders that you meet on the internet become your community. They become your lifelines. They become the friends that you'll make, the people you rely on when you're in trouble. And the information you get through these forums is literally life-saving day to day. It's, it's intricate to your planning. So this particular forum, everyone asks everything. I've literally seen questions you know, to the length of where do you find Viagra in Argentina? I was incredibly offended when a woman who was planning her trip asked a very reasonable question on the forum of how other women manage their periods on the road. If they're able to find supplies, she mentioned that she had a particularly heavy period with a lot of bad cramps and she wanted to know how others have dealt with it. This is a really reasonable question that is absolutely essential to figuring out your day-to-day -day life on the road and it applied to more than 50% of the community in this group and people lost their minds men in particular but not just men saying it was an inappropriate question that it didn't belong in this group that they felt like it was too personal it was in bad taste now there were a few men who were very helpful and talked about what their partners had done on the road for themselves and how they managed it in ways that they could be supportive of their partners. But overall, it was just really disappointing. So I was in El Salvador when that happened, meeting up with Taylor Polly, one of our other partners on our team. And it was the first time we had met and we were having drinks in El Salvador. And we started talking about this forum and what had happened. And I asked Taylor if she knew had there ever been an overlanding group specific to women because we are a huge portion of this community. We met more women on the road than we did men as a whole. And we looked and there just there wasn't anything just for women. So that night we opened up our computers and started the Facebook group Women Overlanding the World. We're so fortunate that when we started the group within a couple days it was several hundred members. And that's because we kind of started out by contacting the other female overlanders that we knew and had met on the road. And it quickly was apparent to us that we all really wanted a space to connect more so than just in the quick Facebook messages that we would send or in just the Pan American Travelers Association group, which was where that comment had showed up. So the group started out as kind of a small group of us who knew each other already talking about issues that we had all experienced on the road. And I love that people treat it like any of the other groups as well. They'll ask things like, what's the best tire size for my vehicle? Or when I'm shipping across the Darien Gap, who do I use? So it's become really an all around resource for overlanders on the road that just happens to be a female community. 
And what I love about hearing that too is that it really normalizes even just being a part of that group or, you know, we have a podcast Facebook group for women on the road as well. And so I feel some of those same things where there's an interesting combination of lifestyle questions about like travel where or where to go. And then also technical questions that fall into the realm of like logistics and mechanics. And it's all pretty awesome because even if you're a part of the group and maybe you are just trying to get a taste of overlanding or road travel in some regard, you get to see so many female travelers taking ownership and asking these questions and saying, well, I'm putting this together. And at least for me, that wasn't modeled to me growing up of women asking questions in a mechanical sense or trying to coordinate their own really awesome travel experience that a lot of people would consider rather adventurous. So even just having people exposed to that makes it more normal for them to go do that too, because it is a normal thing. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it is normalizing just the questions and the experiences that are so day to day for us, but can be so foreign. And we're so foreign in the way that we all kind of probably grew up and were early on exposed to this. What's special about seeing a community grow is identifying what they most need and want and facilitating it in any way possible. Sometimes that means showing others how they can find and give support to each other within their own community. But other times, it means creating something relevant and exciting. For Women Overlanding the World, this resulted in the creation of a retreat series, which had its first launch in Costa Rica this past spring, with more to come in the not-too-distant future. Here's Sunny kicking off some thoughts from the team on what it took to create an event they'd never made or guided before, and what makes Costa Rica the perfect fit for overlanders, especially first-time ones. Women started contacting us, and this had happened a little bit on the road. It's probably happened to Ashley, too and asking how they could taste this way of life, how they could try overlanding without selling everything they own, without taking a year or two off, how to get out there and do this. And that's where this idea was born. We did a scout trip to figure out where we wanted to go and what we wanted to do. And then I think it was about six weeks before the actual trip, we did a pre-run just to make sure timing was right and everything would go smoothly. But I think for the very first trip, of course we wanted it to be successful and whatever successful means it runs smoothly people have a good time and experience something that's out of their comfort zone it's just a perfect little overlanding 101 place especially for what we're doing it gives you so many options for different driving experiences you know it's hard to condense costa rica into 10 days especially with two days of travel it's an impossibility it's a country you could explore for years So we wanted to hit the highlights, but in the same way that we would with any other overlanding trip. We wanted to sometimes camp and sometimes stay places and visit the city and go to the mountains and go to the ocean and experience all the things that we would if we were on our regular long-term overlanding trips and in similar ways. My favorite part about it is the wildlife diversity that's in Costa Rica and the different microclimates within the country. You know, you get to go to beaches, to mountains, to the city, just to regular small towns. And um, throughout all that, you know, you get to see amazing wildlife. I mean, there's toucans, sloths. um, We've seen dolphins in Costa Rica and whale sharks. They've got everything down there. Just being able to to see the nature and, and the culture. They've got beautiful produce and the markets are incredible. You can try different cuisines too. You know, a lot of the Latin American countries, you find what they do well, and then it's difficult to find 
places that are going to have international fare as well. And Costa Rica is so good for lots of great food options. You know, on our trips, a lot of times we'll have people who have certain dietary restrictions. You know, on this last trip, we had people who were gluten-free, dairy-free, vegan, nut allergies, like everything. And I don't know that we could have accommodated that in another Latin American country. We're really lucky. Costa Rica is just the perfect level of more westernized and paired for, you know, American tourists who come down with certain expectations, but it also still feels very authentic. And also it's really safe. That's one of the reasons we chose it. We didn't really have any any trouble in the other countries that we were in, but Costa Rica felt the most safe out of any of them. It just has a lot of American conveniences in some of the bigger cities. Like you can find them there. Even if they're not readily available, you can usually go to a town next door and, and uh, see what you're looking for. But there's the, the waterfalls and um, beautiful plant life. It's just, it's an incredible country. Costa Rica is magical. I mean, it just gives every single day. There's not a lot you have to do to make Costa Rica an amazing time. But what we didn't expect was the magic that happened with the women that we brought. These are strangers, all of them, and they were strangers to us. And they had even less experience doing what we were doing than we did. And they just became such an incredibly cohesive, close-knit group of friends quickly. And they picked up everything quickly. And within a few days, they were saying things like, now I think I could rent a car and drive around anywhere. Something that I wouldn't have done before this trip. And that was so exciting to watch and watch them get confidence with the vehicles as they were driving and confidence with their tents and figuring out that a foreign country is not scary. You just have to ask questions. Sit tight. We'll be back with more travel tips for overlanding Costa Rica after this. Escape Camper Vans is making it easier for you to road trip. As the largest camper van rental company in North America, with over 600 vans in 12 depot locations across the U.S. and Canada, Escape Camper Vans are perfect for all kinds of campers. From first-timers to festival-goers, weekend warriors, and those who want to try on van life for size before committing to building out their own adventure vehicle. Recently, I caught up with our team's digital editor and designer Haley Hurst, who took a road trip in an Escape Camper Van last fall as our team headed south to the Women on the Road event we held in Taos, New Mexico. Summertime gets a lot of love for hitting the road, but honestly, fall-time camper travel is pretty dreamy. For the fall time, I was a little bit nervous that Taos would be cold for camping, so it was awesome to take the camper van from Denver there, and even if it did get a little chilly in the night, we were super cozy inside the van, and we got to go through the beautiful fall landscapes with the yellow cottonwood trees and all of the changing colors. And I love the way that the Escape Camper Van's beautiful colors popped in that landscape too. It's kind of fun, like very festive party van among the yellow leaves. Whether you're looking to try out life on the road, going on vacation, or want to travel in style to somewhere new, Escape Camper Vans make it fun and easy. And because their daily rental rate varies depending on time of year and length of your trip, and it goes down once summer is over, it makes it the perfect opportunity for a desert getaway or a scenic fall color drive on a budget. You might even want to use it to come to the next campout we're hosting this October in Moab. To get a 15% discount on your next road trip, visit escapecampervans.com slash women and enter promo code WOMEN15 to get 15% off. Internet become your community. They become your lifelines. They become the friends that you'll make. 
the people you rely on when you're in trouble. And the information you get through these forums is literally life-saving day-to-day. It's, it's intricate to your planning. So this particular forum, everyone asks everything. I've literally seen questions you know, to the length of, where do you find Viagra in Argentina? I was incredibly offended when a woman who was planning her trip asked a very reasonable question on the forum of how other women manage their periods on the road. If they're able to find supplies, she mentioned that she had a particularly heavy period with a lot of bad cramps and she wanted to know how others have dealt with it. This is a really reasonable question that is absolutely essential to figuring out your day-to-day life on the road and it applied to more than 50% of the community in this group and people lost their minds. Men in particular, but not just men, saying it was an inappropriate question, that it didn't belong in this group, that they felt like it was too personal, it was in bad taste. Now, there were a few men who were very... We're back with the Women Overlanding the World team, talking about our shared experiences overlanding in Costa Rica. And it's confession time on my part. Until recently, I felt pretty guilty that I didn't drive at all while traveling through Costa Rica. Renting a vehicle with manual transmission that I didn't know how to drive, and having a partner who was willing and able to do so, I took to being co-pilot for the week. And while being a co-pilot is an important role, especially in a foreign country, I also couldn't help but feel like I failed a little as a traveler. And not to mention, aren't most traditional overlanding rigs manual? Can I still overland even if I never learned to drive anything but automatic? I had a lot of thoughts and questions about this, but fortunately Sunny and Ashley caught me before I went into a tailspin on the subject. So if I can speak to that, my wife, Karen, who's one of our retreat partners, she is a very experienced driver. She loves to say it. There's nothing she can't drive. And generally that's true. So for her, manual was fine. And that was certainly her choice of vehicle. But there is no way I was going to drive around Central America for a couple of years with her and not know how to drive myself because anything could happen. So I just forced her to pick an automatic vehicle, honestly. Now, do I wish that I knew how to drive manual? Sure. Could I do it in an emergency? Probably. But for our trip to Costa Rica, you know, you can't teach that kind of skill quickly in a week to a group of women. So we didn't really try. What we did was mix up the type of vehicles that we took down. We had a manual vehicle and the rest of them were automatics, which next time you go with Nomad America, just get an automatic. They have them. So, you know, the women who knew how to drive manual and Karen did that and Taylor did as well. And the ones who didn't drove automatic. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that conversation because I think there can be a lot of shame and embarrassment for especially women who just aren't always taught all of the ins and outs of mechanics. That's a sweeping generalization, but a lot of us grew up in a time when that is true with just traditional gender stereotyping. And so it's no surprise to me that a lot of the women who might be going on a retreat would not be able to drive a manual at this point in time. And I like that that was made available to them as an option for those who are interested and comfortable with it. And then also, yeah, there's no shame in driving an automatic vehicle around over any type of terrain. If you're out there driving, then that's great. Well, and there are automatic vehicles out there that are incredibly capable. And as our friend Rochelle from Expedition Overland is constantly saying, you have to start somewhere. Yeah, exactly. I actually don't. I mean, I've been taught how to drive a manual as well. I pretty much never do. And like Sunny said, could I in a pinch? Probably. But that's one of my goals is to be able to do that. And I need to set aside some time. 
And I definitely do feel some shame around it because I feel like I should have. And our vehicle we took to South America was a manual. I drove in the salt flats, you know, because <laughs> there's nothing around. But I think that sometimes if you don't have a lot of driving experience or you live in the city and you don't need to drive that often, going down to Costa Rica and all of a sudden being in rush hour traffic in the middle of downtown, just even in an automatic can be challenging. That's the truth. Yeah, there were some things that surprised me about Costa Rica outside of like the profound natural beauty, the traffic in the city. That was one of the biggest things that surprised me. I don't know why I just wasn't expecting that. So <laughs> I hear that. But, you know, one of the things that we did on the trip that was really fun and, frankly, a great skill was the way we convoyed. Every car had radios. We had a lead person. We had a rear person who was very experienced at sort of blocking traffic so that other people could get over. And, honestly, we looked super badass on the road as a group doing these maneuvers that looked incredibly impressive but were very easy because we're on the radio saying it's all clear ahead. You know, there's someone walking up on the right, things like that. And I think it really showed the women, too, that you can command a space, even on a foreign country road that can be a little chaotic like Costa Rica, if you just have the right tools and skill sets. It's entirely possible that after hearing this episode, you'll want to start overlanding. In fact, maybe you realize that what you've been doing all along is actually overlanding. Or perhaps maybe you'll want to give it a try for the first time now that you know more about it. So if this episode caught your interest at all, and you feel like Central America, Costa Rica in particular maybe, is a good place to start your own adventures, we spent the last few minutes of our conversation sharing insights as to what makes driving in Costa Rica different from most other places, especially if you're more familiar with North America, and practical tips on how to show up prepared. Karen kicks things off. It'd be helpful to speak Spanish. <laughs> A limited amount of Spanish is helpful. It's not required. It's something else, as Americans at least, that we probably think is that other countries are as unforgiving to those that don't speak the language as we can be sometimes, and that's just not true. What we found, particularly in Costa Rica, was that a lot of people speak a certain amount of English and that they were very patient and very grateful when we attempted to speak Spanish. And I think that there was a respect involved in the attempt. I think they appreciated that, and it really got us a lot further. You know, just saying a phrase to, like, say, if you're getting in an Uber, if you're in a city somewhere and you want to take an Uber, you know, if you get in the Uber, we would always ask the driver how they're doing, and he would respond. And at first, before Sunny and I really knew Spanish that well, we would just say, okay, you know, and that's about it. And then once we actually started learning the language a little better, we could have conversations and then, you know, our worlds opened up. Like the drivers would tell us where the cool spots were, you know, where not to go or things in his hometown that we would have never known about if we had not had that conversation. So Spanish is really helpful. It just enriches your experience so much more. And it just opens up so many more doors for you if you have a basic understanding of the language and you're willing to try. Overlanding in foreign countries isn't as hard as you think it is. Uh, iOverlander is the perfect tool for that. It has a ton of information about campsites all over the world. And whether they have Wi-Fi or parking and whether the parking's for big vehicles or not, or if they have water and all this stuff. So that's a huge, huge benefit. It makes traveling a lot easier. I can say that because I started the first half of our trip without it. And then the second half of the trip, was with it. So it's great. 
So that takes a bit of the pressure off, I think. And if you're flying down, a lot of countries will rent out vehicles, which is helpful. Obviously, you know, the culture's different and road signs are in Spanish, so some basic Spanish is kind of helpful. Costa Rica, it's different, but one of the things that I recommend before overlanding through any country, aside from checking apps like iOverlander and talking to other overlanders, is also to look, Facebook's a great tool, and there are groups for every zone, area, county, township in every single country. And those are great resources for questions or for help if you're in trouble. People want to help. They really do. Maybe more so than we're used to here in the States, at least. People just reach out to help. And that's not to slight the States. I think we're a pretty helpful bunch as well. But in Central America, it was astounding, the level of hospitality that we experienced. And I would just say to keep in mind that people look different. The way people do things is different. The language is different. But ultimately... And I don't mean to be cliche, but it was true. People are just people. They're just living their day-to-day -day lives and curious about what you're doing and want to make a connection. And it was very easy for us to make connections with people once we started to keep in mind that we were not special, that we were just visitors and we were tourists and we were experiencing what they have day-to-day -day and appreciating it. And they appreciated us for doing that. I think another important thing to consider with overlanding Costa Rica is that they have a very clear season of their kind of their high season, which is their more dry season. And then they've got their wet season, which is typically our summer. So it goes from about May until November or so. And that can mean that there's some pretty extreme fluctuations in their levels of water and just rainfall. It's way more extreme than we're used to. So I just saw a video recently by a friend of mine that lives down there in Costa Rica full time and just of a fully dry riverbed where it was just getting a flash flood and it was just coming down. It filled this riverbed in a matter of seconds. And I think having a respect for that and the knowledge of, you know, what your climate is and what your area is and what time of year you're visiting is, is super important. It's also going to matter as far as, you know, what your experience is going to be like. Is there going to be a lot of tourists there? Are things not going to necessarily be operating because it's off season, et cetera? So I think it's really important to know that our seasons run a little differently than the way the seasons work down in Costa Rica. Definitely. And the wet season is something to take seriously down there because as it stands, a lot of the roads typically run through at least one or two rivers or large creeks. So fording rivers and creeks are an average part of a lot of the travel that you're doing down there unless you're on the main highway outside of San Jose. So the wet season obviously exacerbates the water flow. So it's just something to keep in mind. And it can be awesome. I mean, I'm not saying don't do a water crossing because everybody should do a water crossing at some point. But know your vehicle and know a little bit about the area that you're about to cross because you don't know. Maybe walk out and check it out first or find a local. We have a water crossing on our trip that we try to take everybody on and everybody gets a chance to drive it. And it's really, really cool. And before we went on it this last time when we were visiting, I went down there and I scouted it and I was able to find a couple of locals that had just come across. And so I asked them, you know, hey, what's it like right now? And what are we looking at? And they actually reminded me that in the morning it's fine. But as you get into later afternoon, when they start typically getting rain, it can be a lot worse. So it's just good information to have. Use your resources and the locals are gonna be one of your best resources. 
Another one is your TIP, your temporary import permit. Every country that we stayed in, we were able to extend our temporary import permit. And what that is, you know, when you come into the country, basically you get a visa and your car gets a visa. And your car's visa is the temporary import permit. And essentially it's there so everyone doesn't bring cars into the country and then they're not taxed. It's a way that the country can get some type of revenue. If you ended up staying there and keeping your car there, then they would tax you on the price of your car. But most places you can extend that. So with Costa Rica, we were there for three months and we were not able to extend it no matter what. The trick a lot of the overlanders do is they'll just leave the country for three days and come back into the country. But it's really not wise for Costa Rica to do that because they will impound your car. So that's a good little piece of knowledge. The other thing too, though, if you if you want to stay there and keep your car there, and if you leave to go out of the country, you can actually take your car and put it in a government-controlled facility and basically suspend your tip. And so, you know, it will calculate from the time that you came into the country until the time that it's suspended. And then once you come back into the country, then you can reinstate your tip, and then you've still got the time left that you had initially. Some of the best advice I got when we started our trip, I had a lot of fear before we left. You know, I'm somebody who has high fear. I have a high anxiety. I always push through it and do the thing, but I often start the thing filled with fear. And this was no different. And, you know, and one of my kind of back of my brain fears, because it's what the media tells us and it's the messages we hear, is that we were going to get taken by the cartels, sold into sex trafficking, you name it. And Louisa Bell of A2A Expedition told me to remember that we are just another car on the road. That we're not special. We're not a target. We are just driving down the road with everyone else. And keeping that in mind really kept me sane because we found it to be true. It was true in Mexico. It was true in Costa Rica. We were not a target. People were not waiting for someone like us to come along. Thanks so much to the Women Overlanding the World team, Sunny Eaton, Taylor Polly, Karen Balsley, and Ashley Giordano for sharing their stories, experience, and passion with us for this episode. If you want to learn more about Women Overlanding the World, including their upcoming retreats, you can find them on Instagram, Facebook, and through their website, all with the same name. We'll be linking this information along with their individual social media handles in our show notes, plus other resources mentioned in this episode, so be sure to check it out. We'll see you next week, but in the meantime, you can find us on social media. We're on Instagram at Women on the Road and on Facebook, including our Facebook group for community questions, stories, and support, which you can find by searching for Women on the Road podcast. Also, if you didn't hear it at the top of this episode, campout tickets are going live. So if you want to grab yours, make sure to check those social media channels for more information on when and how to register. Like I said, we'll be dropping that information really soon, if it's not already out there. Thanks again to our sponsors, Merrill, Escape Camper Vans, and Infinity Luxury Woven Vinyl Flooring. Music is by Jason Shaw, Josh Woodward, and Cavaliers. Women on the Road is a production of Ravel Creative. Until next time, we'll see you out there. Uh, watch out for crocodiles. <laughs> There's a crocodile in pretty much every river. <laughs> I'm convinced.